0: Welcome to Demond Does, the six questions where the same six questions can tell unique story. I am your host, Demond, father of two, husband of one, and leader of this here Demondcast. My next guest is a co-host of Ethics in Video Games with another guest, Andy Ashcraft, where they explore controversial ethical issues about video games, in video games, and in video game design. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for a philosophy professor, a man serious about sandcastle structure, Slow mo
1: Oh, God. Love the intro. Thank right. you. Good to be here. Uh, thank sand you. Sandcastles. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, I love that you found out about the, the, the sandcastle thing.
0: All it takes is a little research. Actually, uh, I can thank Andy's wife, Jackie, who I will have on the show eventually. Um, when she did, she did an interview with you on the dark, the dark for, I almost said the dark Forest. the Dork forest. Uh, that was the, and that was the whole thing. I was like, I did not know you could talk for an hour about sandcastles.
1: Well, when you, you know, when, when you can dork out about something, right? When you've got a passion for things like, you know, sandcastling. You know, I got a passion for philosophy, video games, and sandcastles. And and the family, of course. Right?
0: And we're probably going to talk about all of them. <laughs> yeah. be- Let's uh, be- do it. Before we get into the six questions, let us know where you would like to be found on the internet.
1: I've only recently come back to social media. I've been very happily away from it. But uh, with the Ethics of Video Games podcast, I've had to kind of come back and and do it. You can find us at uh, ethicsandvideogames.com. You can listen to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, uh, as well as watch it on YouTube. And you can uh, find me on uh, Twitter at uh, at Video Game Ethics.
0: Question number one. This is basically the origin story question. So, how did? And, and again, we've got a lot of things going on here. You're a philosophy professor. You talk about eth- and we're, you talk about ethics, and you talk about video games, and we'll get to the sandcastle thing in, uh, a little bit later. I know we're exactly <laughs> where exactly where I want to ask that one. Why philosophy? And then, how did you connect video games with it?
1: Being a philosophy professor, you know, it always looked really awesome in the movies, right? In the movies, right? And and this is, you know, I. I, I'm i the first person in my family to graduate from college and I didn't know anything about college when I went to college. I had no idea what professors would really like but I saw it in the movies and I assumed it was exactly like in the movies where essentially right you get to be this person who's just like deeply engrossed in something that you're you're totally totally interested in And there you are, you know, with your jacket standing in front of a fancy looking classroom with super attentive uh, students dropping, you know, bits of wisdom that can change their life. You know, as you mentor them, films where I saw professors in like small towns, small college towns where, you know, uh, students might run into them. I had this whole vision of what it would be like, right? This idealistic, I still kind of have this as kind of the ideal of my life did not go in that direction, but that, that's kind of what I expected, you know, running the students at coffee houses, and, and and then, you know, every once in a while, the government would call on me for, like, you know, some important crisis, like, there's aliens, and, you know, aliens landed, and you're the only person who happens to know, you know, they seem to be really into video games and ethics in video games, and you happen to be the one person with the expertise The government, right, goes in movies to professors like that all the time. And it makes sense, right, that they would do that because a lot of professors have such narrow niches. Practically speaking, really, I mean, I ended up going into philosophy through two different routes. One was just, I'm just a curious person. I wanted to understand how people worked and... When I was uh, 16, I took a a college class uh, in psychology, and I was like, this is cool, but, you know, I I want bigger than that because people are influenced by bigger forces, and, you know, one of my teachers told me, oh, you know, it's called psychology; it's called sociology, you know, that's kind of bigger, and I took an intro to sociology, I was like, this is cool, but, you know, I I want bigger than that, right, When, when you want the kind of, when you keep asking, but why, but why, and you're not an annoying kid, and as a father, you know how kids can do this in a really annoying way, Right, But yes. when you're like, you're earnest about it, right? You're sincere, but you really want to kind of understand why is this happening? And you want to know the causal why, which is what made this happen. But you also want to kind of want to know the, the meaningful why, right? What, what, what is the, the meaning behind all of this? What's the point of all this? And I wanted the bigger questions. You know, people who have this drive, and apparently this drive is pretty common with people who end up in philosophy, End up in philosophy because that's that's kind of the biggest discipline, right? There's a philosophy of everything, right? So there's a philosophy of physics, there's a philosophy of psychology, right? There's a philosophy of biology. Most sciences originally at some point were a philosophy be- before they got uh, a kind of empirical rigor. So, in one sense, philosophy is kind of just I just looked at that as kind of the the big question. In a more practical sense, even though by the time I graduate from high school. My dad was in jail. I wasn't living with my mom either. My life was really hard. And I really didn't know how to deal with life. I I really, I, I didn't know how to live life. I felt like I needed guidance and I didn't have guidance. And when I was, when I was looking for ideas about how I should live my life, I felt like there were really contradictory ideas about how people should live their life. And I wanted to go major in philosophy to kind of figure out what the right answers were. Never found out what the right answers were. I'm not here to tell you what those right answers were, but I did that. I I ended up being a a, a philosophy major. I graduated, you know, with honors from UCLA and realized, oh man, I got like zero practical skills. You know, I went and sold fake perfumes on the street for six months as my post-college job and realized, okay, I got to get some skills. Eventually I made myself a, a web developer. And I had a job working as a web developer. And for the first time, I, I wasn't poor and I had money and it was really nice. But I, I really felt like my job was kind of shallow and unfulfilling. I really wasn't that good at it because I really had no passion for it. I'd be at work downloading things on Napster instead of focusing on my job. Right? They were going to fire me when they found out that I'd applied to, to grad school. Right? I decided, OK, I need something else. And... By that time, I started having six years of past, and I started getting questions, and I just felt like I needed to answer questions. Mm-hmm. Well, especially, I read Nietzsche. And Nietzsche, in past books Zarathustra, kind of has this idea that essentially God is dead, meaning uh, we've kind of discovered the falsehood of the existence of God. And, and civilization is just taking a while to kind of catch up to that discovery. But everything that we had this kind of base on, right, uh, morality, right, social organization was supposed to be kind of based on God guaranteeing it, God giving you authority for morality, what's called, right, reason for why you should not, reason for why you should be moral and why you should be bad. And Nietzsche was really concerned about this. And I really kind of bought into that kind of question of, God, what, what, you know what do you do and Nietzsche's ideas was were some of them were kind of create your own new mythology to replace god create your own kind of ethics the whole thing was super interesting and i felt like there was kind of an impending crisis that would come when finally the other shoe would drop and the world would realize that hey there's really no reason to be bad last semester i talked with a student who had this this the same crisis the same kind of crisis of, of meaning, you know, about kind of good and bad. I went off and I tried to answer that question. And then I I got a PhD and tried to answer this burning question I had about what is morality about. Right. And throughout this time, I was thinking, yeah, you know, I, I never really thought much about teaching. I thought about, you know, I have questions to answer and that's what philosophers do. They answer questions. And, and I looked down at teachers because teachers were the ones, they were, they're philosophy professors that teach and ones that do research and really write and do hardcore philosophy. And I was like, of course, I want to be one of those. The teachers are the ones that couldn't hack it, right? These days, of course, I'm a teacher. <laughs> 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 and, you know, at, at the time, right, once I started trying to write, publish uh, philosophy, I realized, hey, God, this was so painstakingly difficult. And B, I I hated, I hated writing. You know, I was proud when I managed to get something published. I was really proud of it. And I knew that I was supposed to do that to get a good job. But I really kind of hated the process. And it turned out that I absolutely loved teaching. That teaching is, I I feel almost like it's a calling. My job as as a philosophy professor is fantastic. Sometimes I'm like, I can't believe I get to talk about this shit. (laughs) <laughs> you know i can't believe i got paid for this shit i teach a class on sex and love and you know these are just kind of extremes you know i, I do like i mostly do like applied ethics so different kinds of ethical kind of issues i'm a moral philosopher that's my focus but for example you know we could be talk- i could be having a class on bestiality where you know i spent 20 minutes talking to my students about so why do you think that it's wrong to have sex with animals and after something like that, I'm like, I cannot believe someone just paid me. You know, I just got paid <laughs> to, to talk about that. Because it's really fun challenging, challenging people to think about these things that they really, really take for granted. Right. Okay, so that's kind of the the basic thing. Then the video games thing just got into the point where I I'm always interested in how does ethics apply in real life? I came up with a class for ethics of film, and I had a couple of film professors that were across the hall from me, and we were talking about it, and they were like, you know what you should really check out is video games. And they recommended a couple games, and I was like, oh my god, this is amazing, fertile ground for ethics, there's so much to talk about. I came up with a class for ethics of video games, and I, I got the New York Film Academy, which is where I teach these days, to bite on it, and it's uh, it kind of was my entryway. I've been teaching it for the last uh, almost seven years, and it's one of two classes I think in the world about it. And it's been it's been really great fun. So I started the, and I started the podcast because of it.
0: Question number two: What do you wish you had known when you first started out?
1: First of all, mentorship. Coming from a background where I didn't have anybody to, to talk to about my future, I really wish I had a mentor. I really did not realize how just how important mentorship is. I, I've made so many mistakes in education, in my career, in my personal life, in you know finances, et cetera, because I never had anyone to kind of guide me on those particular things. And maybe because also I didn't know that I should have asked and looked for a mentor, right? I have a brother who's 25 years younger than me, who's now only 22. And I try to do my best to kind of mentor him. I have of course, ideas about what my path, what my story has taught me. And he has his own ideas (laughs) about, you know, what he thinks, how he thinks things are going to be. And now kind of on the other side of that, I'm trying to kind of walk the line of trying to provide good mentorship while also keeping my mind open that maybe his path really is different mm. and he's got to make his own decisions and, and all that. So that that's one. The other one is how important it is to get the basics right about things. I'm the kind of person that always skip the basics. I've always, you know, been the kind of person that's, let's say, I don't know, smart enough or talented enough to be able to kind of get the basics pretty easily. But that made me bored with the basics. and made me want to rush ahead to other things without really getting a good grounding in the basics. That's bit me in the ass a bunch of times. Foundations are really, really important in any field that that, that you do. You know, you don't want to skimp on them and jump to whatever you think is more interesting. Mm -hmm. You, You really want to kind of get foundations. Okay, and the third one. I didn't realize one thing about my career path, one thing about being a professor, is that it's very hard to move. Mobility is, is one of those things that, you know, most of us don't take into consideration, or at least I didn't, right? For professors, once you get a job at an institution, it can take a long time to get a job at one place. And jobs are very rare. They're extremely competitive and it's hard to move from one place to another, mm-hmm. right? If you're a doctor, on the other hand, Right. Or you're in marketing or you teach yoga Right, you can get anywhere that speaks your language and, you know, you might have to recredential a little bit. Right. If you're a lawyer and I've seen this with lawyers and I always thought this was really interesting with lawyers. If you're a lawyer, you're kind of stuck with the law of your country. Right. It's very hard. Right. If you're like an American lawyer and you want to move to Mexico, I don't know how much your entire experience can do you any good you know, unless you do international law of some kind. So it, it's really interesting to think about, you know, I've always really loved to travel. I, you know, wish I had, you know, the ability to kind of move around a lot more. You know, this is, was one of my hopes when we started going going uh, on online on Zoom. I was like, oh my God, can I do this for the rest of my life so I can live anywhere? But now I'm going to be back in the classroom. And, you know, I've had mixed results, some very good results, some not so good results. But this idea of kind of thinking ahead to what you want from life in terms of mobility, in terms of career, is something I would have kind of uh, wish I understood more.
0: Question number three. What is your go-to order at your favorite hometown restaurant?
1: I was originally born in Israel, but, you know, I've been in L.A. for most of my life, and my hometown is L.A., but that is a really big place. Since the early 90s, it's been Thai food. That's been the go-to, right? Thai food is very big in L.A. Right now, it's the steamed tofu ew at the spicy season in Studio City. It's savory with just kind of like these thick noodles. They're thick, flat noodles with broccoli and this brown gravy. It's really awesome. I can't eat spicy food anymore, unfortunately, even at the spicy season, as the restaurant is called. But I still love it, especially with some pineapple fried rice along with it.
0: Do you have anything you like to snack on when you're gaming?
1: My favorite all-time snack is always ice cream. I kind of have to put the game on pause every once in a while to, to to do it. But, yeah, I'm an ice cream person. I Right now, I probably have about seven different pints of ice cream in the in, in the freezer. <laughs> wow,
0: you are, uh, you are into it.
1: The, oh, yeah, along with a selection of frozen popsicles.
0: Oh, wow, okay. But you're definitely a... You're definitely a frozen foodie. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. And you know, and you know, if any anything cold with interesting consistency, I'm I'm all f- and sweet, I'm all for
0: it. What are some of your favorite ice cream flavors?
1: My favorite would be the Häagen-Dazs trio. Häagen-Dazs has like a series of ice creams called the trios, where they essentially have three different related flavors separated by a thin hard chocolate layer that you can break through so let's say you might have dark chocolate milk chocolate and white chocolate with layers of hard thin chocolate in between and Häagen-Dazs really makes fantastically perfectly creamy ice cream so they they do this trio in in a variety of ways they're just really great they're they're not available at everywhere and in fact i haven't seen them for a bit Häagen-Dazs every once in a while releases kind of different uh, very variations, but if you get your hands on those, they're awesome.
0: Question number four. What are you curious about?
1: Philosophy begins with wonder, right? And wonder in the sense of like, huh, I wonder, right? So it's kind of like curiosity kind of leads to all those questions. I wonder about a lot of things, right? I really wonder what a good life is. I'm curious about how you can have lots of different kinds of lives that are very, very different, but they're all kind of good in their own way. I wonder about what justice is and what it would take to bring about a world that that is more just and how it is that we can get out of our cultural biases to kind of think about justice, even though we can't get out of our cultural biases <laughs> to think about justice R- right now, I just happen to be most curious about. The ethics of video games right mm-hmm. i'm writing a book right now you know beside the, the podcast the ethics of video games podcast I'm, I'm writing a book about the social issues in video games so so these are things like sexism you know and kids um manipulation manipulation is a really big one uh, manipulation for money especially mm-hmm. cheating how do you make games that are responsible and deal with really real world world events like let's say wars or international conflicts. I'm particularly interested in, in that one. In my class, I have my students, as their final project, create games about social issues, where the the whole idea is to get the player to learn about and think about some sort of social issue. And they really like run the gamut. Like I've had three pretty good games about abortion. Wow. Uh, which you would think, how would anyone make a game about abortion, right? And three people came up with thoughtful ideas about how to make a game about abortion, right? I've had a bunch of bad games about racism. I've had interesting games about mental illnesses, and to think about how various types of mental illnesses might be experienced. I've had a, a lot about income inequality, you know, wealth inequality, a, a lot of uh, you know, environment, a lot of social issues. Um, so I'm really interested in how games can do that, right? So I'm kind of taking my background in applied ethics, which is kind of how do you apply ethics to real life or, or to you know to kind of like issues that you need like an answer as opposed to how do I live my life, right? Uh, how do you kind of take that and you use the the special power of video games? Because video games are so amazing in that you have this interactive medium where you can program experience for somebody and God, how do you program experience to somebody so that they can learn and grow, you know, personally in this kind of by reflecting on ethics? And you can do this by focusing on some sort of issue so I can leave the game and think, wow, you know, I never really thought about genetic engineering that way. Or I never really thought about what is just so complicated about crime and punishment and the and our prison system that way right? So I, I'm really curious about how games can do that. And I'm also just kind of curious how games can get us to just think about our own values, the the way we, we live our lives, our priorities in life. Like most people, I grew up thinking of games as just fun, but that's really changed. Like I, I think of games as kind of a, a medium that has just kind of started getting into the more serious aspects of an, that art form could, could get could get into when it comes to, to things like this. And that in the future, you know, we can hopefully expect a lot of like just brilliant experiences that could help us grow.
0: Where or how do you think it can that perception can change from just fun, quote unquote, just fun,
1: to art? That's a complicated question, right? Because we're all motivated differently, right? Um, part of it, I think, is there's a lot of different kinds of fun. There's one game I like called uh, this, war is Mine, uh, this War of Mine. It's made by a Polish company, uh, Studio 2015. And they made a couple of these games, uh, w- which did quite well. The lead game designer, he was a kid in Sarajevo, you know, after the breakup of Yugoslavia. Wow. Right. And during the siege of Sarajevo. So he's a kid in a war. Right. And, you know, the city's locked down. And he wanted to make this game so that, you know, with this idea that this could happen at any time. This could happen to you if you live in Aleppo, Syria. Right. This could happen to you if you live in Caracas, Venezuela. Right. This could happen to you if you live in, you know, Toledo, Ohio. Right. So he wanted kind of like to put you in that kind of situation. And it, it's interesting. I, I find the game really, the game is super depressing. It's a game where you play as a survivor and you play actually as a group of survivors and you're just trying to survive and it's really hard and people with bigger with guns essentially take all the stuff and it's depressing and you need to keep your spirits up by doing things like making cigarettes and hopefully playing some music or finding a radio and depression is contagious and if one of your people gets too depressed they might hang themselves. Oh my God. Uh, and and you play a game like that and you ask yourself, why the hell am I playing this game? Right? And it's a really interesting question. And I think it leads kind of to a question, you know, we did an episode on on this question. Why should anyone play? Right? What's the point of playing? Right. Of, of playing a game. Why why do you choose? And obviously, you know, frivolous fun is one, you know, one reason, right? I'm playing the Mass Effect uh, series right now, and it's fun. You know, it's challenging, right? Even though they also have some really interesting ethical uh, dilemmas that uh, are it's a very, very thoughtful, brilliant game. But a game like this War of Mine was not fun. It was kind of torturous, but it was so smart. Games don't have a lot of tragedy. You know, we have so many war games that glorify war. And this kind of gave a voice to... You know what war is really like for most people involved. Right? and And I thought that was brilliant. So I, I, I thought it's kind of like they give you an opportunity to kind of uh, open yourself up to things like this. right and and I, I thought that was really great. There's a bunch of activist games that people have made. an activist game would be like during the Hong Kong protests, mm-hmm. which has which have failed and Hong Kong is done, they had essentially an RPG game that they made that was essentially revolution in our times. The games put you in the position of someone as part of the protest for democracy in Hong Kong. And it allowed you to buy things for this person and all the money would go to lawyers that supported the, uh, you know, the protesters, uh, right? So there you have like someone trying to use games, right? For really serious purposes. And there's lots of other kind of games like this part of the way we move as a society to thinking of games as fun but also potentially serious is just being open to that possibility that you know we can play games for fun and we could also use them for lots of other things i mean we watch documentaries right why do we watch documentaries to be informed we listen to podcasts to be informed right but you know these are not interactive mediums right and right, a good podcast can make you think. A good documentary can make you think and inform you, right? A good game could do that, but can put you in it, right? It can make you experience to some degree what things are like, right? Could touch you in some way that's that that goes a lot deeper and is more powerful. And I, I think partly it's it's gonna take, it's gonna take some breakout games to make people think of games more like that
0: question number five is there anything i should have asked but didn't
1: whenever like i meet a philosopher if i run into somebody i never kind of ask them like what are the things that being someone who has thought about these things for a long time really kind of stick out as things that are wise and important for people to know i always kind of wish i asked this question that's what i would ask and So and I guess that my answer for that would be that there's a couple of things that really kind of stick out to me. Uh, One is that people a lot of times focus on the importance of what is the answer. They just want to know the answers to questions over time. And partly because I've come to the conclusion that there are no easy answers. Anyone that thinks that the answer to the really important things in life are simple and straightforward, I think is just not seeing the big picture. And I think this is the case with, I think this is the case with politics. I think this is the case with religion. I think this is the case with, you know, with ethics, with just about anything that really, that really matters. The questions have become really what's, what's interesting. I think just asking questions, seeing answers from different uh, perspectives, digging into the different perspectives, the, the different things that go into the question and the why we ask those questions, they enrich your life. You know, you may not have the answers and some religious people feel like they have the answer. I get that. I mean, that's that's just not me. You know, to me, that's kind of an inauthentic way of looking at the world. I think there's enough good uh, arguments against religion, even if you believe in religion. And my brother's a rabbi. One should not believe in religion, in my opinion, in a way that is certain, because there's always there's always, always questions. And again, so to me, focusing on the questions is deeply, deeply enriching. The, the other thing is that at some point, I, I really kind of focused on this idea that almost everything in our life is a product of luck. You know, so much of our, of our life is a product of where we happen to be born to, the family we happen to be born in, the race, sex, gender, sexual orientation, geographical location, side of the border, the way we look, you know, the education of our parents, whether our parents spoke English, the personalities of our parents, uh, right? All those things that we we just happen to be born into and have set into motion so much of our lives, right? That the biggest determinant of whether you're of where you're going to be uh, ending up in terms of let's say economically in the in the United States and in most places, is what was your parents' economic status, right? The biggest determinant of where you're going to end up geographically is where were you born, right? Of course, you know I was born in Israel, so you know and I'm in LA, so that's not the case for everybody. And of course, people move up, but so much of our life is luck. Even talent, where'd you get your talent? Well, it's my genes. Or, well, my parents really encouraged me too. (laughs) Or your drive. Why are you so hardworking and driven? Or you happen to run into uh, someone who inspired you by luck. Maybe you wouldn't have run into them. And I think this is really important because we tend to hold people responsible for so much. You know, in many ways, I feel like we have so little control over our lives. But at the same time, I feel like clearly we have to hold people responsible. Right? Personal responsibility really, really matters. And these, th- these ideas kind of rub against each other, but it seems to me that we need to find a way of holding people personally responsible while also really recognizing that so much of what happens to us is really kind of a, a causal chain that we have relatively little say in. You are a
0: serious builder of sandcastles. Like that's like one of your geek things. Tell me about some of your favorites that you've built.
1: I am a pretty good sandcastle builder. I have graduated from being an apprentice to my father-in-law, W.J.T. Mitchell, who is a master sandcastle builder. And I think all of my favorite castles that we built, we built together in part because just building a pretty decent castle with one or two buildings will take me like four hours when i say four hours i mean i go to the beach and we stay there until my wife says done we're <laughs> out of here gotta go. because i'd be i'd be willing to stay there you know to stay there and work and work and work you know as long as long as that takes i'm just in the groove but you know doing with my with my father-in-law you know, together, uh, and usually following his lead, we've done some really, really great stuff. I I don't know exactly how to describe them. Because, right, it's a, typically, we, you know, there is no plan. I I come to, I come to the beach with a plan sometimes. But that plan goes away out the window pretty quickly. And then I'm like, well, okay, but I will try at least one new thing. And I always kind of try one new thing, right? And a lot of the stuff is you can show it visually, but it's very hard to explain radio. I will say that my favorite sandcastle that my father-in-law built without me was after Obama won the presidency. My in-laws are from Chicago, from Hyde Park. Father-in-law teaches in University of Chicago, where Obama used to teach, and they were really big fans of Obama. They did a sandcastle that was like a White House sandcastle, and it was great. It was so so cool.
0: Do you have any pictures? any of the sandcastles that you've built in over Dude. the years, is there yeah. any way you can get me some of those? Cause I would love to see those. That's awesome. Sure. Yeah, Cause I'd love you know, If it's okay to sh- and if it's okay to share, I, I want to share yeah, it yeah, with-, yeah. with the listeners oh, too.
1: Send yeah. my, share my sandcastle. Sure. These days, mostly we do videos. Okay. Uh, yeah. because it's just so much easier to capture it in a video. Cause you can go around, get all the crevices. Right. But yeah, I guess I got some pictures I could send you.
0: Pictures, video. What is that's, that? That's, that's, uh, that, that is, um, not a hobby that you hear about very often so that, that that's really cool I like hearing about things that people are interested in that they're really good at because you can your perspective on sandcastle building you know can relate to other things because if, because you've gotten that good at it and I don't know I just find I find that kind of thing fascinating
1: it's it's cool it's one of those things I never would have thought would be a grown-up hobby but yeah, if you guys, if you want to hear more about it, the Dork Forest episode on Sandcastles is all about that step by step how it is that you can pick up this, you know, pretty awesome ho- hobby.
0: Question number six If you could create a new holiday, what would it commemorate?
1: I could be creative here and make up my own fun holiday and, you know, I think if I did that, I, I can't help but, but want like a day for reflection and conversation about what really matters in life mm-hmm. and reorienting your life like towards that aim. Now, some religions have that, right? I think it's really great, but I would kind of, you know, reorient it so it doesn't have a starting point in religion. But is really kind of open. So you can have kind of, because in religion, a lot of time, what kind of life you want is going to be specifically dictated by what kind of life the religion says that you should have. And I would want something much more open than that. And the kind of thing that would involve specifically discussions about, friendly discussions about, right, what really, really matters. Okay. But having said that, I actually want to borrow a holiday from another country and kind of make it a global holiday. So there's this really kind of neat communist holiday from China called uh, Leifeng Day. It's a propaganda holiday. So let me just say that off the bat. So that's why I find so interesting about it. Essentially, there was this guy, uh, Leifeng, who was a soldier, uh, just a basic kind of infantry soldier uh, in the Red Army that essentially, for some reason, got picked by the propaganda ministry to be kind of the exemplar for people in China, especially for kids, on how to be a good person. And he's like a very kind-hearted, but very simple. All kids would need to read his diary, which was made up by the propaganda ministry. So this, this idea that this guy, essentially, that all kids should read this guy, right, has kind of led to Leifong Day in China. And Leifong Day is a day where essentially people go around and do nice things for each other. It's a day of kindness. Perfect. And I thought that's so cool to have this kind of day of kindness. And, you know, China is big into social engineering. And the idea is that if you have this day of kindness, you're going to get more social cohesion, right? People being kind to, to each other. We focus on love for Valentine's Day. We focus on appreciating our country for July 4th. Why not a day to focus on kindness to others? But I would put another little twist on it. I like the idea that there's this whole propaganda myth. I wouldn't mind making a myth to go along with that, but a worldwide myth, something that's a fun story that we can all, you know, that we can all kind of, you know, share in where the holiday is also supposed to, where you're not doing just kind things for people. Specifically, you're doing kind things for people that you do not relate to as your in-group, right? You're doing kind things for the other, right? for people from other countries for people from other communities if china can engineer social cohesion for china maybe we can do that on a global scale and i think that would be incredibly neat right it's such a cool idea uh, that they have this holiday the final word when i think about the creatives that i've known and this is partly because i live in los angeles and hollywood was my hometown for a very long time i think of how awesome it is to to be passionate about creating things, how passionate it is about doing something new, doing something your own way, and how much that passion can be destroyed, distracted, corrupted by the need to achieve, the need to turn that passion into a career, the need to become famous. And, you know, the people that I've known that have taken that route, where that's what they want to do with their lives. They want to be an actor. They want to be a filmmaker. And, and those are, you know, being in Hollywood, right? Those are kind of like the two kind of obvious ones. I'm always torn, you know, between good for you. And I had a neighbor that essentially was like, either I've succeed in an actor or I'm going to end up on a street homeless. And he sure looked like he was heading in that direction. Oh, and the heading on the the, you know, the heading to the street homeless. Because, you know. Creativity is really important, right? And every life should have it, but it needs to be balanced against other values. I think that there's a way of nurturing creativity that isn't connected to necessarily material success or, or fame and is balanced with things like security, relationships, love, family, personal growth. You know, Americans particularly attach themselves to their careers, to their work, me included, because I'm an American, right? In Hollywood, at least, I find that so much of creativity is tied to success in work uh, and to marketing yourself. That so too much is lost when that happens.
0: Thank you so much
1: for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. A great pleasure, Naman. This was so fun. I I can't wait for my family to be able to like also you know hear this and maybe. F- Find out more about me, right? I don't know how often do we how often do we talk to each other this way.
0: And this concludes another episode of Demand Does the Six Questions. If you like what you heard, tell the world by logging on to Apple Podcasts and leaving a five star rating and review. You can also follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Demand Does. You can also send any comments, suggestions, or questions to Demand Does, all one word, two Ds at Gmail. Com. So, until next time, see, hear it, speak it, live.